Okay, hello, and welcome to episode two of Mediatations. Um, so, a little background. I'm Ari, a 25, and this is my show where it's a pun on Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which is a book he wrote, which is just a glorified diary. And then I made a pun on it by saying Mediatations because we are BF Skinner's rats, and all we do is consume, consume media. And I wanted to. I guess regurgitate some of the media that I consume to you guys. So um, yeah, that's the basis for the show. Uh, so for episode two, I decided to theme it around um, this reading that I'm doing for my writing five class. It's called The Twittering Machine. And in it, we talked about internet addictions. And I just thought it was really interesting because you could argue that everyone has an internet addiction to some extent, right? So if who you are as a person is composed of the moments in your life. And then you look at your phone and you see your screen screen time is upwards of three, five hours. You're spending a significant amount of your life just on a screen, whether like, you know, you could argue it's you being productive, doing schoolwork, but there's also just like mindless scrolling. I know when Instagram started doing reels at first, I was like, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. Yeah, I will gravitate towards my explore page and like watch one or two reels before I realize I'm being an idiot and wasting my time. I feel like that's a pretty common, I don't know, a common way to, I guess, waste your time. But yeah, so anyways, point is, no matter how aware you are of um, your screen time, everyone spends a significant amount of time online. And it'd be so crazy to see that quantified at the end of your life to just say that like you spent... I don't know, like 13 years of your life online. Um, so yeah, if who you are as a person is made up of what you spend your time on, and if so many people are spending so much time online, then you, in a sense, you could argue that we are who we are online. Um, okay, so that was just my takeaway from the reading. Um, I guess I'll get into the meat of it. Um, so for my first, I guess, little note on the reading, uh, the Greeks uh, initially mistrusted writing because it was a because it was a preserved version of what you had said, and it meant that future generations could then go back into what you had written and sort of misinterpret it. Um, so it would be disingenuous to the person who had initially written it right because their message isn't really there anymore. Uh, so yeah. And then also the Greeks thought that writing things down would make you lazy. Um, it was essentially because at that point, any great epics, any great poems, you were considered intelligent if you could memorize them, especially from a young age. And so with the advent of writing, there's no longer that necessity to um, memorize all those things. Um, and then something that, uh, who wrote The Twittering Machine? It wasn't Srenik. It's like Roscoe or something. Um, but something that they said was that now that everyone is on the internet, you are constantly bombarded with text, whether it's literal text that you're sending out to friends or meme captions or status updates or just everything that you do online is um, related to writing to some extent. And so um, I guess access to writing is more prevalent than it's been at any other point in time, right? Um, any thought that you have, you sort of feel this need to, ooh, I should get that down, right? And so 
I don't know. I guess that wasn't that much of a that much of an element, I guess, to thinking as it is now. Um, so yeah. And then another point that they make in the book was that typing on a computer isn't the same as when you're writing something down. So you sort of see this transition from like the Greeks were like, no, the most pure form of knowledge is to memorize it. And then when you, I guess, evolve your language, right? And so now you've got the Gutenberg press and you're writing things down by hand, or I guess not the Gutenberg press, but um, I guess when you had monks in like Europe and they were copying down all these like texts, especially the Bible by hand, right? And so, you know, there's a certain discipline in that, uh, just copying things down or writing things down with like your hand, right? Um, whereas like today, when you type something, it's idealized. Uh, whether you use Grammarly or you're using autocorrect, you will write things and the way that they appear on the screen is a lot differently, right? So like, just ask yourself, do you automatically capitalize every letter at the beginning of a sentence like no you don't but apple makes sure that you do and so writing isn't what it was back then right so it's idealized um and then i guess some weird way to think about it maybe this is going to sound very like conspiracy theorist but um it sort of just is algorithms manipulating your writing and so you could almost say that that same mistrust that the Greeks had of writing, right, that it can be misinterpreted and that it'll uh, make you lazy because you no longer have to memorize things. You could argue that that's still the case with the way that we're writing and typing today, right? Because one, it makes you lazy. Autocorrect, you don't need to know how to spell things like autocorrect has got your back. Um, you don't necessarily have to think about grammar anymore, right? So like Grammarly will tell you, mm, I think you need a comma here or you don't need a comma here. So it is an idealized version of what you are thinking. And it is algorithms at their core manipulating your writing. And so I guess it's interesting to see those same concerns that people had like in BC times still be applicable today to how we continue to like evolve our writings. Okay. Anyways, another thing that they said in the writing was, or in the reading, uh, historian Warren Chappelle. Do I know who that is? No, but he's a historian. So for our purposes, that's what matters. Um, but he has this quote. Uh, I don't think I got exactly the words down, but I, I tried to get the sentiment. Uh, and so the sentiment is, writing is both a journey and the map, a record of where the mind has been. And I thought that was so interesting, just because... I don't know, you used to have drafts, right? Especially if you were writing by hand. So you'd have like multiple drafts where you'd written something down. Whereas like today with Google Docs, you could argue that, yeah, you have a history, but it's not, I guess, a solid map as opposed to like when you had multiple drafts of these things. So I don't know, just thinking about writing that way and thinking about it, like if the final paper is the destination, then there was an entire journey before that. And then I guess that also applies to like all kinds of writing. So academic writing definitely is not the most interesting in my opinion. Um, the, I guess, majority of the writing that I do is either on my spam account or it'll be in my own journals. And so I had never thought about writing uh, as a map before, but I've had journals since I was, probably since I was eight years old. <coughs> Freshman flu, cough number one. Let's keep a cough count. Okay, anyways. Um, yeah, I've had journals since I was eight years old. And so if you 
look back on those. I think I'm on my like 11th physical journal and then just not to see them as books anymore, but as maps of like the journey of where my mind has been. And I, I think back to like those initial entries that were like, today I played hopscotch and I ate, I don't know, pineapple at lunch, right? And so it, it is a map of where my mind has been and the things that I used to think about. And then you look at like middle school entries that are like, today so-and-so was wearing boots that are similar to mine and I don't like her. I don't, I don't know if I ever actually wrote that, but just like the things that you think about and the things that are important to you um, are reflected in your writing, um, especially when it's something as personal as a journal. And so to think of your writing as a map of where your mind has been, I think has made me more conscious also of the things that I write, right? So like, I wanna make sure that that map is the best presentation of myself, but also, when you're writing, especially in a journal, most people don't share that with other people. I know there's very, very few instances where I'll share my journal with someone, like if I've written, I guess, something nice about them. So a lot of the times when people write in journals, they're not writing for anyone but themselves. And so I would argue that that's a more pure form of writing, right? Because you don't have algorithms manipulating what you're doing. I mean, unless you're keeping like a digital journal, but I, I keep mine you know, old pen and paper gal. Um, so yeah, you're not writing for anyone. You don't have an audience. And your audience isn't even necessarily yourself, right? I don't go back and read a lot of my entries unless like, I don't know, I'm having trouble remembering something. But yeah, I, I would argue that keeping a journal, especially for yourself, is one of the most pure, if not the most pure forms of writing. So I don't know, choose, or what is that saying? Stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Socrates. Um, okay, anyways, the next thing, or I guess the next thought that I had was in, that the reading spawned that I thought was kind of interesting was um, this idea that when you're talking to your friends online, maybe not even your friends, like your family members. I know a lot of my friends who still use Facebook, they'll use it to keep in touch with family and you know, people use it to share pictures of their babies or life updates or I don't know I guess that's the more pure idealized like naive view of the internet that that's what it's for especially social media it has turned into several other things that like we'll get into but anyways the more the more pure I guess like what the intention that people had when making their social media initially was like to connect with friends and family and you think that's more genuine, maybe it's even a little naive, but something that the reading said about that was that when you are interacting with someone online, whether um, it's to comment on, hey, my little nephew's Halloween costume is really cute or something, you're not really interacting with uh, the person that you're commenting at or that you're liking their message. Like you are interacting through a medium and that medium is the machine, right? And so the title of the book is The Twittering Machine. And so you could think of these platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Google, whatever you use um, as machines. And so you have to put your thoughts and your sentiments through this machine, have a shit ton of like algorithms apply to it. And then um, on the receiving end is whoever you're trying to communicate with. And so the idea that you're not talking to the person, but you're talking to the machine, and then the machine is translating what you say is so freaky to me. Um, I don't know, because it makes you think about how separated and isolated we are from each other, that like 
we can't communicate on like a one-on-one -on -one basis anymore. It's a one via platform via the other person. Um, when I read this, I kind of thought of that image of like uh, little kids who have like cans of soup connected by string. And so they're on uh, the other end and they're talking to each other. Um, yeah, that, that's essentially what we're doing with the Twittering machine or the Instagramming machine, um, whatever platform you use, the Snapchatting machine. Um, and just that idea that you're not as connected to people as you think you are. Um, yeah, I don't know, made me feel lonely. <laughs> and I guess another part of that is also like, if you go back in time, right? So think of a time before social media, how did people connect? Um, there was definitely phone calls, right? I know a lot of people who don't like phone calls anymore, but like if I have to tell you something or update you or like, I don't know, talk about a plan, especially something that's urgent, I'm gonna call you. Why would I shoot you a text? I don't know. I just know a ton of people who don't like phone calls and I am not in that uh, demographic, I guess. Um, but yeah, anyways, the thing about phone calls that I think is so interesting is that you pick up this little mechanism, right? Um, hold it up to your face, put one side on your ear, the other side on your mouth, and you speak into it and you sort of just have faith that your words will be like transported to this person who is XYZ miles away. And you know that that person isn't there in front of you and you know that you're communicating with them through this medium, but when you make a phone call, there's no attempt to recreate reality, right? Because you know that you're communicating via a machine. Whereas like with the advent of like FaceTime and like video calling, there is so much of an emphasis on trying to recreate reality. So you could think about like the Zoom era of education and how like, I don't know, a way to make a comment in class was like there was a little button to like raise hand and in a classroom setting, right, you'd raise your hand if you had a comment. And so it's just, it's odd to see technology try to imitate reality because one, it flops, it flops so hard. But also as technology continues to progress, our expectation for what that imitation should be also advances with it. And so we're ultimately like always dissatisfied. I think there was this example of, um, in the 1930s, when they were first, like, was it 30s? It might have been. Honestly, I remember listening to a video, and they said sometime in the 1800s, like, 1890s. But I was like, no way. That's too early. Somebody fact-checked me. Um, but anyways, they had said that uh, there was a recording made of an opera singer. And uh, the singer was, like, you know, doing the little opera thing, singing high notes, low notes, whatever they do. And then they took a recording of this and then they gathered people into some sort of auditorium on a stage. They closed the curtain so you couldn't see who was on stage or what was on stage. And then they played the recording. And then they asked people in the audience, um, what did you just hear? And everyone was convinced that there was um, an opera singer behind the curtain, right? Because they are obviously not familiar with like recording technology. You hear an opera voice, you assume, therefore there's an opera singer behind the stage. Um, and so everyone was so convinced that there was a singer. And then whenever it was revealed to them, like, hey, just kidding, this is a, this is a recording, they were amazed. They thought, oh my gosh, we're living in the future and we can now have recordings of, I guess, moments in time. But the thing about the recording is that like, 
think about it. If it was a recording from the 1890s, it is a shit recording. <laughs> like, it's awful, the quality. But because people hadn't been exposed to that degree of, like, technological advancement, it was so new to them that they were just willing to believe that there has got to be something human behind that curtain. And so I guess the lack of exposure paired with, like, the vast like advancement in technology just like convinces people that technology is capable of imitating reality right and so in this case uh, the recording is capable of imitating the experience of listening to an opera singer you know in live time <clears throat> and then you look at now right and so we had our phone calls we were capable of imitating people's voice in real time and that wasn't enough for people uh you wanted I guess, to see people's expressions. And so then you get uh, the inventions of like FaceTime and video calling and I think Skype. Skype must not have been the first one. I can't remember which one was the first one. But um, yeah, people want to, I guess, step it up, right? So hearing someone's voice alone isn't enough. Now you want to see expressions too. Um, and I think there's something eerie about that, right? Because I mean, if you break down an interaction with someone, what is it? It's like the five senses. Um, there's there's sight, and so now you've got that. There's hearing. When you're talking to someone, you don't taste them. I hope not. You're kind of weird if you do that. Um, there's, I guess, like touch, and then not me forgetting the five senses on air. Oh, um, did I say hearing? Yeah, I said hearing. Smell. I guess you do smell them to a certain extent. I don't know. Hopefully it's a good smell. Um, but anyways, yeah, so now that they've got the first two down, they've got sight and they've got uh, they've got uh, hearing. I don't know. I remember there was this episode of Big Bang Theory. I'm so ashamed that I watched that. I'm sure everyone and their mother has seen that video by now. It's an incredible video, but it's like the the casual misogyny of like dorky men in uh, Big Bang Theory and like watching it just made me so embarrassed that I had ever watched the show. But in my defense, I grew up without cable. So like it was my only option. And also I was like in fifth or fourth grade watching it. My older brother put it on. I wasn't there by my own volition, okay? I have better taste in shows than Big Bang Theory. But anyways, I grew up watching it, kind of. And I remember there was this episode with, is his name Howard? He's the really creepy one. Um, but anyways, Howard is, I don't know. He's like gonna go do some research. Maybe he's gonna be far away from Bernadette and he takes out this machine and it's like a kissing machine. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, imagine a bust, right? Of a face. And then it has like this opening for, um, it doesn't even try to look human, honestly. I remember it looking very mechanical, but it has this opening and it has this like little mechanical tongue and it's supposed to be synced up. So like the way that you push against, this is so gross, <laughs> the way that you push against the tongue in the machine um, will, I guess, send a message to the other machine and it'll move the tongue in that machine X, Y, Z way. Anyways, um, yeah, I just remember it was so gross. But when I was little, I was fascinated by that. Like, I remember I thought about it for a long time. I was like, whoa, you can kiss a machine and it's like kissing a person. I don't know. Maybe it's because I was 12 years old at the time. And that's what 12 year old kids think about. Um, but yeah, I just I, I guess I think that technology is real. I don't know. Someone also fact check me on that. But there's so many ways where like 
technology will try to imitate reality across all five senses. Um, so it's kind of freaky to look at that because I guess you get so close to approximating what reality is. And then you could maybe argue in some way that it makes reality less satisfying, right? Because I guess if you know that you're going to do a FaceTime call with someone, you might try to like clean up a little. Whereas like if you stumble onto someone, um, you might not be at, I don't know, your best. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of a weird idea to think that you're not really interacting with the person, but just interacting through a medium to get to that person. Okay. The next thing in the reading uh, was talking about how posting is like gambling. And I thought this one was interesting just because I think I'm not really the type of person to post whenever I have an update. I'll like wait on it. Maybe. I don't know. But um, I definitely have been guilty of just posting on my main account whenever I'm bored, right? And so it's kind of like this gamble that you take. Um, so I know influencers will talk about what pictures get the most interaction. And I know uh, Instagram did that thing that's like top nine where they rank like your top nine posts. And for a lot of girls, like everyone is just aware that if you post a bikini picture, it's just going to get more interaction than really anything else and so you kind of have these i guess ideas of what will get interactions and what won't and with that knowledge you pair it up with this gamble and so you roll the dice you uh post the status update you post the picture and you're sort of gambling to see what kind of reaction you can garner from that um and so i think there was a a question about like whether uh, the internet like makes you want to receive attention like that or if it conditions you to expect attention like that, right? So it's uh, the argument of like pleasure versus appetite. Like do those likes make you feel good or is it that you expect to have them and if you don't, then like you're not satiated and you're hungry for them. And so I don't know. I think it depends on the person definitely. Um, but yeah, just that idea that posting is like gambling. And I think it'd be pretty hard to argue that gambling is good for the soul or the psyche. It's definitely a vice. And so when you compare posting to gambling and you accept that gambling is a vice, then that must mean that posting is a vice, at least in some sense. Um, so I don't know. I, I think that might make people think twice before posting. Yeah. Okay. The next point was the internet was introduced as an equalizer. So there was no race, no gender, no age. There was only supposed to be minds. Um, at least that's the way that like the idea was sold to people, right? And I think it's interesting um, just that like how the internet has evolved. You could say it's an equalizer in that everyone has access to a platform but you could also say that it's not an equalizer because whenever people engage with these platforms, they take prejudices that they have outside of the platform onto the platform, right? And so with the argument of like no race, no gender, um, that's not necessarily true, right? Uh, I know there's like that super tired example of uh, Charlie D'Amelio and the girl, this is so sad, I don't know the girl's name, but... Um, that made the original Renegade dance, right? And so 
they both had access to the machine, right? TikTok and the algorithm. Yet one was pushed, one was like more publicized and like pushed onto people's feeds, whereas the other was, I guess, like forgotten to the sands of the internet. Um, And so it's sad to, I would argue that it's sad to see how the internet has devolved from this big, like democratizing, equalizing plane to what has become, I guess, something that just eats up all our prejudices that we take from outside of the internet onto the internet. Yeah. And then also there's the argument of like different platforms will encourage different prejudices, right? And so um, I know, oh man, I, I think last time I also talked about the podcast Finchtopia, but um, there was a section where the two hosts talked about how a podcast is more liberating because it's a more free form platform, I guess. Like you don't have to worry about your image. You don't have to worry about what you look like when you're talking. And it's just Maybe you're worried about the cadence of your voice or something, but there, there's just different concerns, right? Whereas like on Instagram, it's the still moment in time. It's an image. It's an image that's also capable of manipulation, right? And so uh, you have things like Pixar, you have things like, uh, what is it called? Facetune? Yeah, Facetune. Um, and just how Instagram is a platform that is more susceptible to biases, in my opinion, just because you can modify so much of an image. Whereas like if it's an audio recording and let's say you're not doing music, right? Because there's definitely a lot of like auto tune and stuff that goes into music. But if it's just a podcast and that's your uh, form of media, then you're not as susceptible to, I guess, these corrupting biases that can enter different platforms. Um, Maybe that's why I gravitated towards having a radio show and also writing too, because that's, well, no, I I think writing also gets torn up pretty bad. But yeah, just this idea that like the internet unfortunately did not become this equalizer. Um, It's still susceptible to the prejudices that we hold outside of the internet. And then you could also argue that like anonymity will encourage um, equalizing ideas, right? But when people are given anonymity, like, yes, it gives them the prerogative to, like, be more vulnerable because nothing that they say will be tied to them. But also, like, not to sound all like Leviathan Thomas Hobbes-esque here, but it also brings out the worst in people, right? And so um, the reading from last night, God, that was painful. It was, like, 90 pages. I am sleep-deprived. But anyways, uh, yeah, they there was an entire chapter called We Are All Trolls, and it just talked about the worst of the worst. Um, as far as, like, trolls, like, I think there was a mother who had, like, posted about her, like, teenage son's suicide, and then, um, like, many months later, like, on Mother's Day, some troll, like, made a post, and it was, like, a tombstone, and it was, like, Happy Mother's Day from the grave or something like that. Like, people just do awful things when they are given access to anonymity so I don't know anonymity can be a good thing but it can also be just really awful um so yeah that idea that they're I guess something that was supposed to be this pure idea of the internet as being equalizing it is just as susceptible to corruption um and even the even the access to anonymity won't I guess counter that corruption if anything it'll it'll make it worse it'll Uh, exacerbate that um yeah okay what else did I write 
Oh, just this like little note that was like the powerful will engage differently with the machine, right? Um, it just has to do with how big your platform is, but also who you are, right? So the way that like Trump will conceptualize Twitter is a lot different than how, I don't know, some like mom who communicates with her church group on via Twitter will conceptualize Twitter. And so, I don't know. I made this comment in my writing five class the other day that was like, uh, and that because everyone in our our class is pretty aware of like, I guess internet addictions and also how to mitigate your time online, and so everyone was talking about like their different methods to spend less time online, and it's interesting the people that gravitate towards that writing five because they already have an interest in it right and they already recognize that like, the internet probably is not the most healthy, uh, platform to be on. But I thought it'd be so funny if, like, you got a bunch of influencers to take the class. And so just, like, the idea of, like, Tana Mojo sitting there and being, like, Facebook is doing what with my data? Like, I mean, I'm not saying she's dumb. I don't know the woman personally. But um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of confusion about um, who we are on the Internet and, like, what happens to our data, how long it's there. And so I think people who are proponents of the internet they have a big platform they I guess owe their career to the internet if they were to take a class like this that shows I guess the underbelly of what the internet can be uh yeah okay so yeah the powerful do engage differently with the machine oh also I guess another argument for like why the internet could be a good thing is that you could argue that marginalized people or people who people in society who have had their voices taken away from them, um, you know, whether that's like a gender bias or a racial bias, ethnicity, whatever it is, um, they are sort of enfranchised again, right, through the internet because they have access to a platform. They can use a hashtag and get their opinions out to so many people. But also, again, the powerful do engage differently with the machine. And so, um, I don't know, there's... There's a lot of talk about what kind of ads are uh, given to different people and like echo chambers and stuff. And so you could say that like marginalized people are re-enfranchised through the internet, but then you have to ask yourself, what, I guess, demographics are they re-enfranchised for, right? So like, you're definitely not seeing like someone who's non-binary and their opinions being spread around like 4chan or something, right? Like that is the hard rights, like, little echo chamber and that's where they go for comfort so I guess I don't know I, I just provided a counterpoint to that so I don't know the internet probably again still is not the best place to be um I mean I guess if your intent is community especially community with people who are similar to you and believe similar things then in that sense yeah the internet can be a good thing but then it's a question of do you believe the right things and is your community peaceful and then like that has a shit ton of nuance to it so I don't know okay next point uh we use our smartphones to remove us from social situations oh and then I got this quote from the book that made me feel so lonely it was we are both lonely and threatened by intimacy and I think about the line at Hinman maybe and how no, 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 not even the line at Hinman, but just, like, how I will walk to class with AirPods in and, like, you know, one of the five senses, right, hearing, 
I am stripping reality of that hold over me. I'm, I'm basically telling reality, I will no longer engage with you on that level of like sensitivity. Like I will no longer hear what reality is. I am only willing to accept the reality of fucking Spotify and whatever my playlist of the month is. And so I'm not in, I don't know, like, hearing people as you walk to class, like, I guess maybe that's a level of intimacy or like, I'll miss certain hellos because I have my AirPods in and I just like refuse to engage with reality on that plane, on the plane of hearing. Um, So yeah, there's that. And then also you could just think about um, that like joke that like kids will be at sleepovers or they'll be at kickbacks or at parties and they won't be talking to anyone. They'll be on their phone and you know, old people will always say things like, oh, you're right in front of each other. Why don't you just talk to each other? And then I guess the go-to answer would be that it's awkward or I don't know what to say. Whereas like when you're on your phone, you don't really have to say anything. You're just consuming. Um, And so, yeah, you just have to ask yourself that when you're in a social situation and you choose to disengage yourself uh, by being on your phone, what is it that you're trying to consume online. And most of the time you're not really doing anything. You're just like, I don't know, bullshitting. You're like wasting time. Whereas like you could be forming like actually valuable connections with people in front of you. But you also have to ask yourself, like what are you trying to remove yourself from? What are you trying to avoid on like the plane of reality that you are turning to your phone as a, as a place of comfort, you know? Um, so yeah, I think I really can't remember where I read it, but honestly, I think it's just a popular idea that, like, this is the most lonely generation. Um, I'm sure COVID did not help with that, uh, the isolation. But, I mean, I guess you could also argue that the isolation, especially being isolated for a year, made people more willing to hang out once they were, like, given the opportunity to do that again. So, I don't know. Again, it depends on the kind of person. But, yeah, there is definitely that idea. And I'd say it's fairly prevalent that this is the most lonely generation. Um, Also tying to that, uh, psychologist John Twenge, uh, he found an analysis, he found in an analysis of American post-millennials that they are far less likely to go on dates slash have sex. And I think when I read that, I had the thought that like, going on a date, right, it's like a physical we'll meet up at this place, do this thing together. Having sex also happens on like uh, a physical plane. But it made me think about like, I don't know, people go on e-dates or they'll just text people via like online dating platforms. And I'm not arguing that that's a date, but it kind of satiates that need for intimacy with someone, especially of uh, your preferred sex or like someone who you're attracted to. And then as far as sex, like, I don't know, people be doing it on Snapchat, (laughs) like sexting or whatever. So I guess, is it that post-millennials are, don't have this need or this desire or, yeah, that they don't have this need and they're neglecting it? Or is it that they've found different ways to satiate this need and so they're no longer going on dates because they're texting like 20 different people on a dating app and they're sexting them also. So, um, yeah, just this idea that like American post-millennials probably still do 
have similar levels of desire. It's just that the way that they choose to engage those desires is a lot different than they used to in the past. Um, okay, also related to that, online, or this is a point that I wrote, online dating is, quote, a fairy tale. It is the fantasy, uh, the wish fulfillment of the poor. And I mean, I think like most people, when I think poor, I think like monetary, right? Like, are you wealthy? Are you not? Um, but what the writer meant with poor in this case was just something that you are lacking, right? And so you definitely see people like gravitate towards online dating platforms, especially like Tinder. I would argue personally that Bumble is the more like pure, genuine form of online dating uh, compared to like Tinder. I mean, I guess it has to do with what your intention is going into it. Um, but yeah, just it's the wish fulfillment of the poor. And by poor, in this sense, it could mean someone who one is like lacking social engagement in that sense, like a romantic sense. But it could also be someone who just feels deprived of that. And so online dating does feel like a fairy tale, right? So the idea that like, you could be swiping across your feed and sort of see these people who have lives and are, you know, three dimensional or whatever, and they're just reduced to this sort of like product and how um, you'll see ads, right? And it's like this one product can change your life. And so if you see people as products on like a dating platform and you're swiping through them, you could also, I guess, have that like fairy tale, that wish fulfillment, that idea that you'll swipe on this person and it will be the product that you need it will be the thing that will change your life and you don't really see that person for a person you see it as a product you see it as something as a tool to like I guess better your lived experience so I don't know I think that was a very sad way to think about online dating the wish fulfillment of the poor and I guess it also deals with the acceptance that we are the poor we are uh, the people deprived of I guess, like, I don't know, the wealth of, like, romantic um, experience. Yeah. Okay, next point. Wow, really sad tangent. Um, what we do on our phones has just as much to do with what we're avoiding. I mean, yeah. I think people are definitely less inclined to, like, just go up to someone at a bar and talk to them, whereas, like, that was definitely – the main form of communication. I know um, our professor talked about how like at a party in the 80s and 90s, if things started to feel stiff or stale, you would, I guess, just step outside. You'd be like, oh, can I bum a smoke? Or like, do you want to smoke outside? And you would leave the big group to go outside in a smaller group. And that could sort of um, be some sort of like lubricant for like social interactions, right? And how there's always been some sort of lubricant that we need for social interactions. And it's what are we avoiding the awkwardness, the friction of social interaction, we don't want to deal with that. And I guess you could argue that it's the same thing for online dating, right? You don't want to deal with the friction of having to approach someone um, out in the wild at a bar. And I guess, face the possibility or like the potential for um, the potential for just being rejected, right? And so when you're engaging on an online platform for dating, it's sort of that acceptance that like, oh, you find me attractive and I find you attractive too and you're into me. And I suddenly don't have to engage with the possibility of rejection because we are already, you know, we have this shared 
experience of the platform and we're not communicating to each other. We're communicating via this little interpreter, which is the platform, whether it's like Tinder or Hinge or Bumble. Um, so yeah, it's just what we do on our phones does have to do with what we're avoiding. And I think with online dating, the main thing that people are trying to avoid is the potential for rejection. And I don't know, I think rejection builds character. <laughs> I mean, am I jumping at the chance to be rejected? No, but I think everyone should face a certain amount of romantic rejection in their life. I think it's chicken soup for the soul. I think it it does build character. I think it makes you a cooler person, a funnier person. I say this as a person who's engaged with re- rejection. Um, okay, next point uh, is internet addiction about pleasure appetite. Yeah, been there, talked about it, done that. Uh, post-text status updates, little ambulatory prayers. Oh, um, I guess that just has to do with like whenever you – especially if you have a public account, like whenever you post a status update or something, it goes back to the idea of it being a gamble. But it's also like, uh, I don't know, when you when you think about praying, this is also coming from an atheist. So this is probably not the most pure form or the most pure conception of prayer. But you are kind of talking out into nothingness. Maybe it's like a desire that you're putting out into the world, like, oh, I really wish this would happen, or I really want direction here, right? It's something that you want for yourself or something that you want for the future or for the people in your life, right? And you could argue that posts are kind of like that, um, just because you're putting it out into the world, you want people to see it. And so I think of, um, I don't know if this is what the writer meant by it, but this is definitely, you know, my interpretation of it, but like an ambulatory prayer, because you could say that a prayer, like a traditional prayer, you're sitting down somewhere, you're praying to God, it's static, it doesn't move, you make the prayer, and then it's gone into nothingness. Whereas if you make a post, especially from a public account, it's an ambulatory prayer, because ambulatory, you know, it's walking around. And it's sort of this idea that like, you can get retweets, you can get likes, you can get shares, it can be, I guess, sent out into the masses, right? And so when you pray, I don't know, there's also like, polytheistic religions, but you have one audience, you have one, I guess, place where you're trying to get your message out to. Whereas like, if you're sending some prayer out via some platform, it's ambulatory because it's walking around. It is getting likes, it is getting shares, it's getting engagement from the community. And so the idea that prayers can no longer be static and they have evolved to become dynamic, right? They're moving around. Um, Even posts, or yeah, like posts can become viral like years after they've been made if like it gets the right engagement. So (laughs) this is a shit example, but like the Catch Me Outside girl, right? That video had been two years old by the time that it ended up going viral. I wouldn't argue that that was anybody's prayer. I don't think she had the intention of going viral, but there's other senses where uh, something could be an ambulatory prayer. So like if you put a work of art out there, maybe a poem, maybe some visual art thing, it is an ambulatory prayer, you're hoping it gets likes, you're hoping it gets shares, you're hoping it's dynamic and like spread around the community. Um, And I don't know, I just, I think that's a cute little phrase. But also, again, another thing that makes me feel lonely, just the quote from the book, little ambulatory prayers. Um, Okay, yeah, next point, 
It's not about the reward itself, but the chance. Oh, yeah. I don't think this was from the book. I think someone just said this in my class, and I thought it was really good. Um, and it's this thing that making a post isn't about actually receiving likes. It's more about the potential to go viral or the potential to, I guess, beat your personal record of likes and get the most engagement ever from this post, right? And so it's not about the the prize. It's about the potential for the prize. And so um, they brought up like B.F. Skinner's little rat box, right? And so how rats were more like, or okay, there were two scenarios. Uh, in the first scenario, the rat would uh, push this lever. Sometimes a treat would come out and sometimes a treat wouldn't come out. And so it was pure chance. And then there were other rats who were placed in this box and there was a lever and you push the lever. And every time that you push the lever, a treat came out. And they found that the rats that uh, had to deal with like the optics of, um, of chance were more likely to become addicted than rats who were guaranteed a treat every time. And so that's sort of like posts because you're never guaranteed community engagement, right? And so you have to like modify your posts to, I guess, meet that. Um, and so we are like the little rats, not the first, or yeah, the first rats, right? Where you have to deal with the optics of chance, um, whether your your post will flop or whether your post will be your personal record or whatever. Um, so it's not about the reward itself, but just the chance of the reward. Um, what was the next thing? Oh, we had a little argument about, or not argument, it was just a discussion about this. Um, I think most people in the class didn't agree with the writer, but the writer said something like, a culture obsessed with happiness is deeply unhappy. And in my government class, we had talked about asking people why they want to be happy is like one of the stupidest questions ever. It's just like, it's the default, you know, we're hardwired to pursue happiness. And I think if you ever ask anyone, why do you want to be happy? Just shut up. <laughs> it's a dumb question. And so that kind of relates to like what the writer was saying in the Twittering machine, or like a culture obsessed with happiness is deeply unhappy. Like, no, sir, the default is to be obsessed with happiness. The default is to pursue happiness. It doesn't say anything about your original position of whether you're happy or unhappy. But I did see a place where like this could be applicable where you could say like a culture obsessed with ethics and sustainability is a culture that is deeply unethical and deeply unsustainable, right? And so you'll see so many pushes for like being more sustainable, using a wooden toothbrush, not using plastic, using a reusable water bottle. And I am in no way making fun of these things. Like I do a lot of these things. I think most people should do these things. Um, we are sitting on like a heating up planet and we're gonna like freaking see the way of the dinosaurs if we don't change our behavior soon. But like the point is that we are as a culture are so deeply unethical. Well, are we? Because I guess you could say it's corporations and corporations don't necessarily represent the culture, right? They represent the 1%. Hmm. She is thinking. I don't know, but I think just as far as like this desire to be ethical and sustainable, right? Uh, when faced with like our own mortality and if we don't change our decisions, then the optics of our future aren't looking very good. I think... That's true, but then I guess you also have to pair it with, like, people who go on 
I guess, like, huge shopping sprees on, like, really un- unethical, like, fast fashion sites like H&M and Forever 21 and stuff like that. So, no, I, I think the the statement still stands that a culture obsessed with sustainability is a culture that is deeply unsustainable um, because you you could definitely say that, like, we are obsessed with sustainability. You could also say, like, a corporation, right? So, like, whenever Starbucks rolled out their paper straws and they were like, guys, we're really ethical. And it's like, Starbucks, you're a corporation. No corporation is probably ethical. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it is... I guess unethical at its core, but it has this, uh, it has this like sugar coating of ethics and like uh, sustainability that they wanna, I guess, like gloss over the core that is corrupted. Um, yeah. Okay. Next point. Uh, oh yeah, I talked about FaceTime trying really hard to recreate reality. Um, let's see. Oh, there was this last point that was. Does technology transform or enhance our, I guess, uh, engagement with reality? I don't know. I would, okay, naively and ideally, like, this is what I would like for it to do. I would like for it to enhance, right? So whenever you move away to college, you still want to keep in touch with your friends from home. I know this is so bad. The only the only thing that I'm really homesick for is my little brother. And I know that if I didn't engage with like all these platforms and if I didn't engage with Zoom, I wouldn't be able to see my little brother like move in real time. Right. And I, I know that, you know, it's not reality. And I know we're engaging through some machine, the Twittering machine, the Zooming machine. But I would prefer that to not seeing my little brother and like not seeing and hearing his laugh at the same time. Um, So I would like to live in a world where technology just purely enhances our perception of reality. Do I think that's the case? No, probably not. I think um, technology has transformed, I guess, certain aspects of reality. So like the idea that like technology is now some social lubricant um, for reality, right? And so you no longer have, I mean, it really does depend again on the kind of person that you are. But I know some people who like went ham on social media before college. And so they like DM'd a ton of people and they made a ton of friends. And whenever they got to the college campus, like even though they'd never physically met these people, they knew what they looked like. They knew what their interests were. And whatever, it was a social, the technology, I guess, was a social lubricant for them to meet each other and like become friends. And I know there's definitely other people who just did not engage with the 25 account at all, right? And like, didn't uh, use technology as a social lubricant, they walked in blind. And I would say, I was, I was probably the middle ground between those two. Like I, I had people who have like the same scholarship as me, I, I knew them and that was a social lubricant because I knew their names and like I, I could feel like I could talk to them. We did Zooms beforehand. So I felt, you know, a certain degree of comfort around them. I definitely wouldn't have felt that like if I had met them for the first time whenever I was on campus. But see, that's an example of it transforming because pre-social media, pre-that technology, you wouldn't have had that lubricant, right? And so you would have had to walk in blind But now that you do, you've transformed the way that you engage. And you could also say that it has transformed reality, right? Because you'll never know who you would have become close to or who 
your friends would have been or what your reality could have been um, isolated from that technology. Um, And now you're just sort of stuck on like the default. Well, this is the decision I made. I chose to engage with the technology. Therefore, that defined my my reality. And I don't know. I think my like visceral like gut reaction is to say that uh, my instinct is to say that transform technology transforming reality is a bad thing um, just because it feels artificial less pure um, but I don't know if it trans you could argue that it transforms reality for the better but again there's so much nuance to that the way that people engage with platforms the messages that they're putting out there I don't know um, but yeah There was a question, I think, at the beginning of my class, too, where it was like, do you think that um, the Internet takes away our free will, right? And then uh, the chapter talked a lot about, or the whole book really talked a lot about B.F. Skinner and, like, his little rat box experiment. And, like, I know that B.F. Skinner, he definitely did not live to see what the Internet would become. But even before that, he argued that there is no free will or conditioned to want, think, and believe the things that we do because of our experiences. Um, And if technology has become this like ubiquitous experience, I guess we're not all having the same experience of technology, but I guess we have the same tools there. So in that sense, technology is ubiquitous. Um, But yeah, just we are conditioned and I think with the advent of technology, there's a new layer of conditioning that goes on. And so it, it I guess, further complicates the question of free will. Um, so yeah, that was Mediatations episode two, um, me talking about internet addiction and how I'd probably admit that I'm fairly addicted to the internet, but I think most people are. Um, I try to mitigate it like most people. Um, What are my takeaways from this? Go outside, touch some grass. Um, Yeah, make a friend. Yeah, (laughs) there is no solution to it. Also, like, it's not like I'm arguing we should take away the internet or anything like that. Like, at this point, it's so deeply ingrained into our society that, like, what are we going to do except try to fix it? And then there's also this idea that, like, tech thinks that you need more tech to fix things right and so uh our little rat brains aren't evolved to like be I guess just bombarded with this much information and this many images I know (laughs) this is a joke but um there's this YouTube channel called like it's something about like Christian girls and um they made this point where like it used to be that the prettiest person you knew was like your hot cousin or something like that. Like not like in an incestuous way, but just like, oh yeah, my cousin is really, really pretty and she's the prettiest person I know. Whereas like now everyone's prettiest person that they know is like Kylie Jenner or some micro influencer, whoever it is, right? And so it changes your reality. You are faced with like so many different like aesthetic options, right? And I'm not saying that that's like the sole thing that leads to like, a a proliferation of anxiety in the generation, but it'd be tough to find someone who wouldn't agree that like technology or the internet especially has played a role in um, spreading or I guess leading to so much like widespread anxiety in the generation. Um, 
oh my god train of thought where I was like going <laughs> oh yeah but just like how we're more anxious than ever before and now you're seeing like apps start to pop up I think there's like the calm app and there's a bunch of like meditation apps and it's like you should be able to do these things independent of technology. Like you don't need an app to fix your anxiety. Like you probably need to talk to someone, a therapist, or I don't know. I don't have the solutions to anxiety, man, but I just, I think it's tough to think that technology holds the answers for everything, right? And I I think it's a scary world where like you have AI um, managing like suicide hotlines or something like that, right? So I think like these deeply human flaw not flaws but I guess struggles challenges you're not gonna find the solution with technology I mean at least that's what I think so far right now definitely susceptible to change um but yeah in conclusion touch some grass uh yeah thanks for listening to mediatations episode two um bye